Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. It is, of course, Christopher Menning, your host. I hope you've all been keeping well. Uh, I've been really busy working in uh, Phuket, of all places. Um, as you know, I live in Thailand. Uh, I've been opening a sort of fine dining cocktail bar down there. So I've been having a lot of fun, been keeping very busy. But we're back with a great episode to start. Uh, we are welcoming the wonderful Tristan Stevenson, uh, who I'm sure many of you will know. He spent many a year in the beverage trade and uh, was quite pivotal in the UK beverage trade, bringing it up to the stands it is today. He's also a prolific author, um, writing many, many books, some that inspire me to carry on my career, including The Curious Bartender uh, and a wealth of spirit, uh, spirit particular books like whiskies and rums. And of course, he's also the host of the new Diageo Bar Academy podcast, which is called Bar Chat. I say new, but it's actually in season three now. Um, but it's a fantastic show, having an incredibly amazing array of individuals, including myself. I was actually one of the uh, the guests on the show as well. So we're going to chat all about that today. Um, Tristan's a great guy. He, he's got so much to talk about. And I even said to him, we probably could have gone on for another hour. So uh, yeah, I might invite him back next day. Um, if you look at the show notes, you're going to find all the links to his like episodes and also to his books. Um, so please go check that out. And yeah, that's pretty much it for me. So I promise now I'm going to be back on track with regular weekly episodes with a wealth of guests coming on the show. And I think you're going to love it. So thanks very much, guys, for holding on. Uh, yes, I am back. Hope you didn't miss me too much. And enjoy this episode with Tristan Stevenson from Bar Chat on Diageo Bar Academy podcast. Benjamin Franklin once said, in wine there is wisdom, in beer there is freedom, and in water there's bacteria. No bacteria here. This is On the Back Bar. On the Back Bar is your gateway to talking to the people behind the scenes at bars, distilleries, and vineyards around the world. We'll talk to the experts in the industry about future trends, people, spirits, cocktails, wine, and everything else. So kick your feet up, pour your favorite drink, and hang out on the back bar. This is Christopher Menning. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to On The Bad Bar Podcast. Uh, yes, it has been a long break, but we're back with a fantastic guest to start off uh, this year, Strong, Tristan Stevenson. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. Uh, it's been great to sort of uh, be waiting to have you on, and obviously we talked quite recently on your podcast as well. So, um, yeah, how, how's it been, man? How's 2022 been off to you? Oh, uh, hi, Christopher. Thanks for thanks for having me on. Um and yeah, thank you also for coming on the uh, Diageo Bar Academy podcast as well. Um, it seems like quite a long time ago we recorded that, maybe close to six months, five months, something like that. Um, it was a while, yeah. It was a little while ago. Um, have you had a bit of a break on your podcast then, have you? Is this the uh, first episode in a while? Yeah, I've had about two months off. Oh, okay. um, and I, I'll explain to the guys early, uh, earlier, but yeah, mostly because I've been busy with consultancy, so yeah. Um, Anyway, good to get it back up and running. Good cool. to have you on. Sorry, I started firing questions at you then. Um, my 2022 <laughs> has been good so far. Um, it's um, been hitting the ground running in terms of businesses that I'm involved in. We've um, we've got a whiskey subscription business here in the UK called Whiskey Me. And um, last year was a really good year for it. We um, appeared on 
the uh, BBC TV show, TV show uh, Dragon's Den and managed to get investment from Three Dragons. And, you know... That's so cool. Yeah, it's, it's cool. Um, and besides the sort of... <clears throat> The cash injection, which, to be honest with you, is really a small part of of why anyone would wish to go and do that kind of thing. The um, the PR side of it was is huge for us, and so the business is, I think, four times bigger than it was this time last year, and still growing. And new opportunities opened up, and things like that. So we've had to expand the team and um, expand our offering. And what was a sort of side hustle for a number of years has now become myself and my business partner, Tom Ask, our sort of main focal point. And um, it's, uh, it's cool. It's a fun thing. We never thought we'd be involved in e-commerce and subscription businesses, you know, with bartenders and that was our, that was our bread and butter. But um, instead of having meetings about, you know, the next cocktail list, um, which we do kind of still have those meetings, but instead of talking about ingredients and flavors and that sort of thing, we're now talking about, customer marketing and uh, packaging and things like that. So I like these sort of twists and turns that life deals you though. And um, I like to learn new skills so I can get my teeth stuck into it. So it's, it's an exciting thing. But um, besides that, we've, we've opened a couple of new bars recently as well. We, we, um, we've got a Black Rock whiskey bar concept, which started about five years ago in London. We've opened five of those in total now though uh, one of them closed um in bristol during the first covid lockdown and sadly due to sort of non-negotiable rent terms from our landlord there um but we've just opened two more one one, another one in london out in east india docks which is not a sort of general catchment area for people that want to visit bars in london but uh is nevertheless you know a relatively um uh, busy part of town because it's right near Canary Wharf um, so it's almost like a, a sort of town within London um, in its own right so we opened one out there and then um, even more recently only about a month ago at the time of recording back in sort of early Jan we opened our first international outlet in Shanghai which is more your neck of the woods though I realize not exactly close by <laughs> to where you are in uh, Thailand um, Close, closer than England you're in England yeah um Sadly, I've not actually been out there because, of course, travel restrictions and, and all that. Um, so we've not yet actually got to visit it, but we've partnered up um, with a group out there, Shake, um, and, uh, and, and a couple of old um, acquaintances in the bar industry out there who um, actually um, we've worked with in the past. And so that one's off the ground now and um, hopefully more of them to come. So yeah, that's how my 2022 is going so far. That's that's the most part. Oh, and I've just finished writing a book as well, um, which we can talk about. <laughs> wow, um, well, it sounds like a fantastic start to the year. So much going on, and uh, yeah, it's crazy when you say about Dragon's Den. I remember I love that show. Like I watch it all the time, and yep. um, I did watch that episode with you guys as well. So that must have been so much fun. Um, it's um, I think it's interesting. I talked to uh, Sean Saul about this and how bartenders are are definitely evolving their roles further than just the bar and um sean coins it as like hospitality entrepreneur and i guess that's what you are as well because you are involved in so many different things and um you know i i normally ask my guests about their sort of origin stories and um you mentioned about writing a new book and actually for me how i first heard about you was your books and it was the curious bartender Mm. and uh, i love that book i love all the imagery and and the cocktails and i i remember at the time going wow this is crazy how can anyone you know do this level of bartending and 
and obviously over time I, I read um, your sort of whiskey book, The Ramen. Um, yeah, I guess I'd just love to dive into that and mm-hmm. hear, you know, firstly about your origin story, the books, which have probably inspired bartenders all over the world. Um, and then I guess up to where you are now, which is part of uh, Diageo Bar Academy podcast, um, yeah. the bar chat and, you know, everything from there. So yeah. I'll let you take over. Um, and yeah, I can't wait to hear more about this. All right, cool. Um, <clears throat> yeah, get, get yourself comfortable. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> yeah. I, uh, so I got into hospitality at a pretty early age, um, sort of officially, I guess, at age 17, 18. But I mean, I was working in a fish and chip shop from age 14, and you could class that as, as hospitality, um, I suppose. Uh, I, I mean, I've never really done anything other than that, although occasionally dabbling in certain um, trades, building and, and plumbing, which, you know, inevitably ended up being useful uh, later on in my, my bar career. Um, but really only as part-time jobs as, as an additional income stream to, to working in, in, uh, in bars and restaurants. The reason I needed additional income stream is, stream is that I'm from Cornwall. Um, in the southwest of the UK, which is uh, basically where people in the UK go on holiday, um, and a beautiful part of the world, but extremely seasonal. So if you work in, if you live down there permanently and you work in hospitality, you find yourself struggling to get work in the winter part of the season, uh, simply because no one really goes there in the winter and everyone goes there in the summer. So it's a, it's a really strange dynamic like a lot of other parts of the world i suppose there's there's a you know a, a very well defined season and it makes it very tricky for working in these businesses and especially for operating them because the whole sort of idea that you know you have you try to reduce your churn of staff and you have sort of um, training programs in place and induction all that sort of stuff more or less goes out the window because you just don't have the t- the privilege of time to be able to activate stuff like that because it's like literally all hands on deck from the beginning of the season you know here you go here's a here's an order pad here's how the tools work get to it um and uh, that is just the way that it works works down there for the vast majority of businesses um if you're lucky you get staff return um year on year and so they have experience and they understand the way of working but it's often not the case because it's a very specific type of lifestyle for someone who you know wants to roll in for five months, work their ass off for like 60, 70 hours a week, surf when they're not working or go to the pub or whatever, um, and then find some other activity to do, usually a ski season or something like that in the winter. Um, that kind of lifestyle, you know, is there's, there's certain attractive qualities to it, but it's the sort of lifestyle that not many people continue to do for more than a few years. Um, inevitably end up sort of thinking, oh, I might settle down and get a, uh, air quotes, proper job and, um, you know, have a family and buy, buy a house and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, that was what I was sort of brought up in, but, um, I lived there, you know, I was, I'm from Cornwall originally. And, uh, so I got to see sort of both sides of the season, uh, and, and, you know, the pluses and minuses of all of that. Um, anyway, after doing this for quite a few years and working my way through, uh, I don't know, half a dozen, maybe 10 different places from pubs to restaurants to bars. Um, uh, around the time I must've been about 21, uh, Jamie Oliver, uh, the, the big famous chef, um, was at the time opening, uh, a chain of, um, restaurants that were owned by charities called 15. And the idea was that for anyone that's not familiar, the idea was that you open a restaurant with the sort of celebrity names backing that is 
bound to be popular. And you use that popularity and that assured um, level of income to train up disadvantaged youngsters to become chefs. So all of the profits get turned into a kind of training scheme that can um, that can benefit young youngsters in who are disadvantaged. And the restaurants are specifically opened in areas where there are an abundance of disadvantaged youngsters. And the idea is that you teach them chef skills um, that they can then go on and get proper job, proper jobs as 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 fully fully trained chefs. Um, and this works on a sort of year, yearly process. So every year there's a cohort of 25 youngsters that come in and they go through this training process that they're, they're both going to college courses and working in the kitchen alongside actual trained chefs. Um, and then the whole year goes by and they sort of graduate from this apprenticeship scheme at the end of the year. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, the first one of those was in London in, in Old Street, um, near, near Old Street, around about 20 years ago, I think. Anyway, the 15 I was involved in down in Cornwall, I opened about 15 or 16 years ago. No, it must be more than that because I was 21, 22, so maybe eight, 17 years ago. And I managed to land the bar manager job somehow. I'd been working in restaurants before that and really gotten into cocktails. I'd sort of um, cut my teeth reading the source guides by Simon Difford, the original Difford's guides uh, that came out in around 2001. <clears throat> and... Um, you know, realized, I guess sort of realized there was a gap in the market in Cornwall. I realized that there was a huge number of people coming down and they wanted to be able to eat and drink well. And the food scene was really growing. You had chefs like Rick Stein, who some people may be familiar with. He's certainly a big name in, in uh, the UK and around Europe, um, who were producing, you know, high quality food, using local ingredients, celebrating kind of Cornish produce. Um, but no one was doing this with cocktails. Um, and so I realized there was something in that. I'd been to some of the great bars in London at the time, Lab, Lonsdale, uh, Milk and Honey, and realized that there's nothing like that in Cornwall. So I kind of set about trying to change that and producing a, you know, a, a higher standard of cocktail and drink service. And that worked really well at the restaurant I was at before 15, and it managed to get me through the interview process with 15 where I became the bar manager. And I worked there for two years and it was great because I had all year round work because 15 was so busy. It was, it was even busy in the winter, thanks to Jamie Oliver's name. And by the time I sort of emerged out this two year process, I was changed again. I'd gotten really into coffee and become slightly obsessed with espresso. And this was, you know, really a few years before the, the coffee scene really started to pick up pace. So at the time there were maybe sort of half a dozen or 10 baristas around the UK who were championing coffee. They were entering coffee competitions. They were getting geeky about espresso and extraction times and solubles yield and coffee origin and all this kind of stuff. But it was still very much like a weirdos topic, um, something strange to be obsessed with, um, which is crazy to consider when you look around the whole world now. You look at every major city and there is at least half a dozen incredible cafes with people who are wholly dedicated to producing fantastic coffee. Well, that just was not the case anywhere in the world, uh, really, besides a, a, a very few outlets when you, when you go back 20 years. So um, I got in there pretty early with coffee and for a time considered having a career in coffee. You know, when you work in a restaurant bar like 15, about a third of your time is spent making cocktails and mixing drinks. A third of your time is spent making coffee and the third of your time is spent cleaning. And so that was one of the reasons I got into coffee in the first place. I was like, if I'm going to spend a third of my time doing this job, 
I might as well find ways to enjoy doing it, find something to be good at, you know, understand what makes a great cup, what makes a perfect cup of coffee and see if I can get anywhere near it. Um, it's very difficult to do, by the way, and I didn't really ever get that close to it. Um, but I did start entering coffee competitions. At one point, I came third in the UK Barista Championship. So but this is back when the competition really wasn't that stiff. Like I say, there weren't that many people doing great coffee. But um, I did uh, did really consider getting into coffee, and I, I visited, spent a lot of time with espresso machine manufacturers and working with roasters and all that sort of stuff. Um, but also around that same time, I got chatting with... Um, my Diageo rep, um, which was a guy called Chad Kilburn, Australian guy who actually worked for reserve brands in the UK. And this is when reserve brands only existed in the UK before it kind of went multi-market and, and is what it is today. It's before world-class was even a thing. And, um, or it was, it, it was a thing, but it was a very localized thing in the UK only. And, um, Chad was like, you know, you should, we should do more stuff with you. Cause I was doing cool stuff, cocktails still. And I said, okay, well, yeah, let's do more stuff. And he started driving me around the place, you know, taking me to other bars. He was introducing me to new spirits that they'd just taken on in the portfolio. And, um, and then a job became available uh, to be a brand ambassador for reserve brands in the South. And I'd be working with Chad and basically going into bars and training them on cocktails and doing spirits tastings with, um, with the portfolio. And it was just before Diageo acquired a share in Kettle One. It's just before they started bringing in Zacapa, um, Pampero, um, Siroc was just around launch time or, or perhaps had just been launched. So it was really as that portfolio as we know it today was becoming established as we, as we know it. You know, you go back a f- just a few years before that and you had basically Johnny Walker, The Malts, uh, Smirnoff Black, Tanqueray, um, and not a lot else besides, you know. So it was a formation of that whole portfolio that that is sort of, um represents world class and and dba and everything um so i took the job um because i thought you know what i've been bartending now for i don't know what was it eight years something like that and i fancied you know this idea of getting a company car and and cruising around the place and doing tastings and i absolutely loved the job it was incredible it sort of opened my eyes to what other bars were doing it was at this stage where in the uk bars were really starting to up their game the coffee scene was doing the same thing but it was this you know it it was it was tangible how quickly things were evolving not yearly but monthly you know every single month someone new was opening something and doing something cool and the the thing was gathering pace like a snowball falling down a hill and getting bigger that's what snowballs do um and uh so uh, you know incredible and what was best about it was um the team that i worked in so i got to meet people who I'm now still really close to, some of my best friends, um, and indeed my business partner, Tom Ask. We were on the same team. He did London and I did the south of the UK. Um, but that team was uh, full of incredible people. Daryl Haldane, Mitch Beshard, uh, Barry Wilson, who um, a lot of people listening to this might know as the guy that came up with World Class um, and has basically managed the competition ever since. Um, and... Uh, you know, so so in terms of sort of creating that network of people, both who I was working with and who were in the bars that I was visiting, it was um, an incredible period. But um, my relationship with Tom grew particularly, and we kind of 
you recognize that there was this sort of snowball effect. There was something gathering pace. There was a kind of undercurrent in the UK of this bar scene that was just improving. And I don't want to don't want to make out like there wasn't anything there beforehand. You know, there were obviously great bars that opened during the '90s and the early 2000s, but they were a small number. You know, um, especially a small number that were actually producing really great cocktails. And um, we could see these new bars popping up all over the place. And not only that, we could see in other markets um, around the world that there was a demand for this new wave of bar that we were seeing in New York and seeing in London and seeing in, you know, the other sort of most developed cocktail cities, if you like, um, Bangkok even. And um, we decided, you know what, we, we can maybe we can jump ship here. We've got a big enough name for ourselves. And we really, we didn't have a big enough name for ourselves, to be honest with you. Um, but we had confidence in that, <laughs> misguided confidence. Yeah. Um, that, you know, we can perhaps attract some consultancy work, basically doing the same job we were doing for Diageo, but obviously charging an independent consultants fee and being able to work with whatever brands we wanted. So we did jump ship and we, we managed to bag um, almost immediately a huge consultancy job out in Azerbaijan in Baku um, for a kind of pan-Asian restaurant that was opening up there massive investment from very well connected people out there and um we bagged this job and it managed we, we we got a sort of payoff that would have probably sustained our salaries for six months to a year um but instead of just sitting on our, resting on our laurels and t- attempting to seek out additional consultancy work we were like hmm what about if we invest this cash into uh a bar and we can use this bar as a sort of shop window for our consultancy work by, you know, producing great drinks and, um, uh, you know, such showing our sort of style of service and of hospitality um, and also have something to do with our time day to day. We can use it as a development space for our consultancy services, working on new drinks concepts. Um, and, you know, it, wouldn't it be a fun thing to do to actually open our own bars? And neither of us had ever done this before. So we found a site in Marylebone in London, which was a basement bar that had been on the market for quite some time. It was formerly a Caribbean jerk chicken and champagne bar, which at the time sounded totally ludicrous, but I can actually possibly see that concept working <laughs> nowadays, weirdly. What a um, mix. Yeah. yeah. I mean, who doesn't like jerk chicken and champagne, right? It does sound pretty good. True. Yes, it does. <laughs> so... Um, so we, we took it on and we, we basically sort of recognized there was a certain movement in the US um, and in a very small way in the UK towards sort of speakeasies. Um, and again, you know, you hear me say that and you go, well, yeah, of course there was, but there really wasn't at the time, right? There was PDT, was pretty new, Death & Co, which had a sort of speakeasy vibe to it, um, was, was also pretty new. And um, there was Milk & Honey, of course, which had been doing it for quite some time. Um, so we went down the speakeasy route, um, you know, very little advertising about the place. The, lo- the, the door and location wasn't totally obvious. It was underneath a sandwich shop and um, we had a doorbell and it, we just kind of did everything we kept, could with the decor and the music to make it feel a little bit illicit. And then we did this crazy cocktail list that was just purely theatrical, mad creations. And this, I think, really was something that hadn't been done before possibly um outside of uh what's the um singapore uh bar with the kind of really cool presentation cocktails i forget the name they moved it um tippling club um 
Tipping, oh, yeah, tip- tipping club. Um, well, the only place I know that we're doing anything like this, where it was like every drink was a sort of experiential um, journey, you know, with multiple props and all this kind of stuff. And the reason we did it, um, and we actually only found out about Tipling Club and what they were doing at long, at like after we'd, we'd, we kind of st- opened. The reason we did it is we'd been through this whole world-class process. Tom and I had been working on these competitions, running them, judging them for like two years. And we'd seen incredible creations that bartenders were coming up with. But then when you go to the bar, you would never get served that cocktail. It was considered to be too complex, too faffy, too, you know, too much involved. And we were like, it's a shame because consumers never get to see how creative bartenders can be. You know, they tend to just get the same old twists on classics. And that really was what it was like at the time. So we, we sort of formulated protocols and ways in which we could create these drinks um, and serve them fast so that we had time to be able to put together, you know, elaborate garnishes and props and all this kind of stuff that would support it. And the way we did it was by batching, quite simply. And batching again something that's done you know pretty much every bar and you know every 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 top cocktail bar in the world doesn't know but it just wasn't the case at the time batching really was unusual certain cocktails maybe but not all of them and and that was that was the way we got around it so everything was batched and then mixed uh, to order but um it gave us a chance to do these crazy things like smoking drinks in bottles wax sealing them um you know, filling up balloons with aromatized air and helium so that when they popped over someone's glass, it blasted lemon oil all over the drink. Um, you know, we were serving drinks out of paper bags. We were using liquid nitrogen in various ways, creating ice cream a la minute, um, <clears throat> all sorts of, all sorts of mad stuff like that. And it was just a playground. And, um, it was, a bar about two weeks where we were deathly quiet as soon as the reviews started coming in from the likes of timeout the place was just pumping the whole time um i re- i still remember the day that the timeout review came out and we just had the f- this is this was before the days of like electronic re- reservation systems or at least it was for us so it was a paper book and uh, a phone and the phone just rang all day long non-stop just people booking 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 to come in and um yeah it, it just went from strength to strength Anyway, following the success of that, we've decided we actually get into the bar operating business and we were still doing some consultancy jobs. We still had quite a lot of that flowing in because as, as we had hoped, the shop window that Pearl provided and subsequently Whistling Shop, the second bar that we opened, um, you know, really, really sort of helped our, kudo, our, our sort of status within the consultancy world. And we had people approaching us wanting to operate similar kinds of businesses from all over the place. So, you know, we worked on bars across numerous different countries and cities and in the UK. Um, but Whistling Shop um, was uh, was the second bar. We opened it, um, I think, exactly a year after Pearl. Um, a similar site, but much larger out in East London. And that was more Victorian-inspired. Um, we uh, brought on Ryan Chetiodana, who's a very old friend, to, um, to run the bar. And... Um, uh had an incredible team there and that that bar was you know had a capacity of about 150 it was a high volume cocktail bar really and um that one you know d- did also very well indeed and then we did a bunch more openings i mean i'll rattle through them but we opened a hot dog restaurant up in Hampstead that unfortunately didn't work out so well um food is is always a challenge i find running at kitchens and operating chefs i actually worked in the kitchen there myself for the first year and wrote the menu and everything, um, which was a stressful period. 
we opened uh, another restaurant down in Cornwall where I'm from, Surfside, which is a seafood restaurant, um, which operated actually very successfully. Um, but the lease ran out last year um, and we decided not to take on the new lease because the landlord wanted to double the rent. <laughs> um, but uh, that, yeah, we had a rum bar there as well that was hugely popular, an outdoor rum bar. Um, and then, yeah, it sort of moves on to, on to Black Rock, really, and, and what we've done there in East London with the whiskey bar concept. Um, but I'll take a sip of my cup of tea and <laughs> take a breather because um, I realize I've just unloaded quite <laughs> sure. a lot there. Yeah, quite a lot. But then um, I guess you've, you've done so much in your career, right? So it's, um, <laughs> there's probably a lot to talk about. Um, amazing to hear about the sort of venues you've been involved in um, and operating as well. Has it always been sort of UK based or, you know, you mentioned earlier about your first consultancy, but, you know, I, I know also you mentioned uh, Shanghai, the new location. Mm. How, how did that start from, you know, being very localized to sort of spreading worldwide and, uh, and open places? Yeah, well, uh, um, the Shanghai Black Rock's the first international, it has to be said. <clears throat> um, but I think the story of that starts with Black Rock itself, um, which for a few years was just really a concept we i think we kind of recognized um probably close to 10 years ago around the time we opened whistling shop that whiskey bars were severely lacking um and i mean lacking in numbers but also lacking in terms of what they offer to the consumer um whiskey itself though was evolving at quite a pace you know, if you look at the way that the whiskey category has changed over the last 10 years, it's enormous. Um, 10 years ago, there weren't many bars that dared to put single malts into a whiskey cocktail. Now, you might have put a splash of something smoky in there, sure. Um, or you might have, you know, put a splash of something else in, you know, a, a, a whiskey in a cocktail, like a, a burnt martini, for example. But... Um, for the most part, it was blends that were used in whiskey cocktails or bourbons or whatever. Um, we put a single malt cocktail on the on the um, whistling shop menu, and I distinctly remember it being it feeling like a sort of somewhat revolutionary moment. Like, wow! It was a it was a uh, Downmore drink, and Downmore gave us some support on it, and they were kind of like, wow, this is cool. Like, this is pretty cutting edge. You know, we're putting this malt into a drink. Um, and again, people listening to this will be like, well, come on. But it really has changed a huge amount in those, in those years that, since. Um, and so I think that that was a moment for us where we thought there's more we can do with whiskey. And there's, because there's that whiskey, that whiskey cocktail I mentioned um, went on to become the most popular cocktail we served. And that was a surprise to everyone. Because it was like, wow, this is a whiskey cocktail. It wasn't a sour style drink. And yet it's the most popular drink on the menu. And that told us that, you know what, there's demand here four cocktails containing single malts. So I think it sort of set some cogs turning in the back of our heads, like, right, there's, there's a space here for a new type of whiskey bar that's more fun, that isn't afraid to challenge convention, um, and that is really sort of inclusive of everyone. You know, it doesn't matter who you are, gender, sex, race, whatever. Um, there's, you know, there's something to be found in whiskey. And so that involved breaking down these sort of traditional barriers of entry. We had to get away from like bagpipes and tweed and, you know, middle-aged men and, you know, Chesterfield sofas, that sort of stuff. And, um, and say, well, you know what, whiskey is not defined by any of that. Um, it's whatever you want it to be. 
and this is so much the problem with a lot of spirits i think a lot, a lot of um, spirit categories is there's a preconception about who the person is that drinks these products and if you feel like you don't fit that criteria then it's not for you um and it, you know it's just silly um especially in a category like whiskey which is so diverse everything from sort of light grain whiskies that are you know not that distinguishable from vodka um right through to you know heavily peated malts and spicy rice and so on and so forth so we came up with this concept that would just basically challenge everything so we looked at all the problems we had right atmosphere is a problem music's a problem um you know the the look and feel of it is a problem the lighting's a problem the style of serve of whiskey is a problem and we changed every single part of it um so uh, the price is a problem um choosing which whiskey is right for you is a problem so yeah the way in which you remedied it is we said right we're going to play hip hop okay because that's about as unwhiskey as we can think of um we're going <laughs> to yep. we're going <laughs> we can put a huge great oak tree trunk in the middle of the room because you know that doesn't seem like something that a whiskey you know pub in Scotland that does tastings for you know older white men uh, would do um we're going to have a very simple pricing policy we're just going to sell whiskey for three different prices okay five pounds seven pounds nine pounds um we've actually changed we've bumped that up by a pound now because everything's cost more than it used to <laughs> um all the whiskies will be sold at one or one of those three prices a bar from a select few which are much more expensive in price and application which gets around a huge problem that you have in whiskey bars which is how much does that one cost Oh right, it's 20 bucks a dram. Okay, that's too much. I don't want to buy that. Now I feel crap about myself because I don't want to buy it. Or okay, yeah, I'll buy it because my friends are watching. Now I feel crap about myself because I'm broke, you know? So it just made it very simple. Each each bottle was indicated the price by how many black rocks were stuck to the neck of the bottle. One black rock, two black rocks, three black rocks. 5 pounds, 7 pounds, 9 pounds. Um then there's the decision-making process based on flavor. Like you go into a traditional whiskey bar and you say, right, what am I going to drink? And the bar itself tells you nothing about what anything tastes like. Okay. You just have a library, a wall of whiskeys arranged by probably the country of origin, uh, the region of that country um, or the base material and then the distillery. And then that's it, you know, which is ridiculous because a country of origin doesn't tell you a great deal about what a whiskey tastes like. The region doesn't tell you a great deal. And even the distillery these days, you get distilleries producing whiskies of all sorts of different styles, some peated, some unpeated, you know, some distilleries making bourbons and malts over in the US. So what does the, what does the fact that the distilleries all put together tell you about that, the way that whiskey going to taste? It tells you nothing at all. So we said we need this, this, this system's broke, okay? We're relying currently on the bartender to tell us what's going to taste like what what's you know and there's no there's just no need for that it's good to have conversation and dialogue and recommendation sure but we can make the arrangement of the whiskies on the back bar work a lot harder for us so what we did is we basically split whiskey the whole category into six different flavor camps smoke fruit sweet spice fragrance and balance okay Balance is kind of like the get out of jail free card in this one. It's one. The, it's the whiskies that don't fit into any of those camps neatly. Okay, a lot of blended whiskies sit in that category. And we all we did was we removed the back bar together and just put six cabinets in, and each cabinet contained all the whiskies from each of those flavor groups. So all the smoky whiskies are in the same cabinet. All the fruity whiskies are in the same cabinet. 
now yeah there's crossovers occasionally um but uh you know we we take a little bit of uh, artistic license with that and then in addition to that what we decided was we can create a sort of a graph here with an x-axis and a y-axis and the x is is the the flavor count the y is the intensity or the lightness and the heaviness okay so high up in the cabinet all the whiskies are light they float low down in the cabinet all the whiskies are heavy they sink okay so you can take a selection of three to four hundred whiskies which is about what we stock at black rock not 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 an insane amount of whiskies there's certainly bars that stock way more than that but quite a lot and certainly a lot if you have no idea what any of them taste like okay but if you split those let's say 300 whiskies into six cabinets then you're down to 50 okay if you split those 50 whiskies uh into four different shelves which which tell you how heavy or light they are okay you're down to 12 whiskies okay so if i know that i want a very light fruity whiskey i've now only got 12 whiskies to choose from okay but then i've got three different price points as well okay the five pound seven pound nine pound so from those 12 whiskies i know i want to spend nine pounds i'm feeling flush so i can divide those by three now i'm down to four whiskies that are light fruity and cost nine pounds okay then it's easy to make the decision right you've only got four to choose from and you know you can be assured that you're going to get everything you want out of the transaction so that was how we did it it doesn't of course always work that neatly you know it might be that all of our heavy smoky whiskies are all quite expensive and none of them are cheap but you know roughly speaking that's how it should work and that's how we buy whiskey as well we look at parts of our cabinets that are lacking and then we try and fill them up. And of course, we buy from, from all over the world. We try and celebrate whiskies from all different countries and styles and that and so forth. So that was how we fixed the kind of decision-making process. Um, and then, of course, you know, you've got a bartender who can then provide additional recommendations. The other thing we did with the serve side of things is we, we, we did whiskey cocktails. So we, were doing, we did from the start, we've always done six highballs and six uh cocktails which would be more of your sort of sours or stirred down and brown kind of style drinks um because we think that highballs are a great sort of access point to whiskey and cocktails in general are a great kind of way of exploring whiskey flavor and and enjoying it and um it's it's worked really well for us our, even our cocktails and our highballs are named by the same flavor camps so we have a fruit cocktail and a fruit highball we have a smoke cocktail and a smoke highball we don't give them more the names are quite generic that's the sort of denomination i don't get anything more creative than that but it tells you like right i want something <laughs> fruity but i don't want to do whiskey cool what about a fruity highball or a fruity cocktail um and so so that was it so and people would come in and they go wow this is just a new way of experiencing whiskey and we knew more or less from the start that we were like wow we've really hit upon something here that's a bit different in in the whiskey category and you know, that original Black Rock in, in East London has won Best Specialist Bar from Class Awards, which is the biggest UK um, sort of awards program for bars, every single year since it opened. Five years. The, the awards didn't happen last year. Um, they're going to happen again this year. But um, that, 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 you know, sort of cemented in our minds that, you know, we create something pretty special there. And um, yeah, so um, as a result, we're hoping to expand and we're working with a group there out in China and um, uh, the, the one in Shanghai is, is hopefully the first of a few. Um, we will see how it goes. But, you know, we, we've more or less um, 
transitioned the entire concept out there. You know, if you look at the pictures, um, you can see that it looks very much like the original bar in London. Everything from the cabinets to the philosophy on cocktails and the, well, the philosophy on how to serve whiskey and how to, you know, make it inclusive and 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 fun for everyone um, has has um, been really expertly um, create, recreated out there. And we're like I say, I've not been yet, but I'm I'm super happy with the way that things look and the team over there seems to be really happy. So. Um, yeah, it's it's a wonderful thing. The system you created, I mean, so so I guess the whole idea was to make um, whiskey more accessible. Um, I, I'm wondering how how did customers generally receive that system when they came in? Was it like at first a shock, like oh, this is how we choose, or was it? Did it make the whole uh, sort of buyer journey much easier for everyone? Yeah, I think so. I think because the thing is, it's if you don't know about whiskey, it certainly makes the journey easier because. Those flavor groups are terms upon which everyone can relate to. You know, we all know what we think fruit tastes like and smoke and so on. And they may not um, materialize in whiskey in quite the same way as fruitiness does in, you know, an apple. Um, but that's part of the joy of exploring. So for a novice, it certainly, I think, works as an effective tool of exploration. But here's the here's the great thing. If you know whiskey already, it's also a fantastic way of exploring new whiskeys because you can find whiskeys in the cabinets that you know and love and enjoy and then look for what the whiskeys that are sat next to it or just below it or just above it and be fairly well assured, if we're to be trusted, that those whiskeys are of a similar style. So... You know, I one of my favorite whiskies is um, Klein Leash 14, and I really like the Distillers Edition as well. Um, now that uh, I, th I think I think it sits in our fruit cabinet. The Klein Leash Distillers Edition certainly sits in the fruit cabinet. Possible that the 14 is in fragrance. I'm not sure. Um, so what I do when I go into Black Rock, because we turn over whiskey fast, um, is I just make a beeline for Klein Leash Distillers Edition which I think, I think it's sort of lower down, slightly heavier, fruity whiskey in that cabinet. And I'll just look for what's nearby that I haven't tried. And it's brilliant because I'll go, all oh, right, cool. There's a, you know, there's a whiskey from Germany that I've never had before. Um, and I'll speak to the guys. I'll sort of double check it. It's like, is that good, is it? You know? And they're like, oh, yeah, sherry cask or wine cask or whatever. Um, yeah, you should definitely have a crack at it. And, and I'll, I'll try it and I'll, I'll be exploring something that I've never had before that I probably would never have tried before. Uh, I've tried, would have tried, sorry, if I hadn't enjoyed Klein Leash and had this system in place that um, recommends whiskey um, based on location. And so, you know, as, as, a, as a way of exploring for people that really know about whiskey, because look, even if you really know whiskey, you walk into one of these bars like the Craigellachie Hotel in, in Scotland. They've got the, um, the bar there. Um, it's a wall of whiskey more or less arranged by distillery. You know, I, I, I've written two whiskey books. I've been to 400 distilleries. And yeah, I am bamboozled by, uh, and, you know, a, a, in the face of that kind of thing. Like, where do I start? You've got independent bottlings of this distillery. You've got distillery releases. You've got stuff that I've never even knew they've put out. You've got a blend that might contain a, a whiskey from that malt distillery. What does that taste like? And, you know, I've just got to ask recommendations and trust that the bartender knows what they're talking about. But wouldn't it be better if all the whiskeys that tasted similar are put next to each other? 
So that's how it's been received. And I, I, most people agree that that is the best way. And we're starting to see it in other bars as well. There's other bars um, that specialize in whiskey or other spirits that are starting to realize that it's a way better way of putting things together um, by, by um, grouping things by flavor. The, one of the original ideas for it, by the way, came from Dave Broom's World Atlas of Whiskey book. And the, also the malt whiskey flavor map that Diageo put together, which sort of put whiskies on a kind of graph that sort of roughly put similar whiskies together. Although it, it was a tricky one because there's only so many whiskies you could fit onto the graph. And sometimes the flavor map was with um, particular expressions and sometimes with distilleries. And of course, distilleries don't always conform to a specific style. Anyway, Dave Broom, one of the things he did in the World Atlas of Whiskey was for every whiskey, he would have a recommendation of another whiskey that you might like if you like that. And that was sort of the seed of the idea. It's like, yeah, that's the way it should work in bars. But no one bartender is going to be able to, at any given moment, recommend any whiskey they've got and to another one, you know, because there's so many different combinations and permutations. And you're never going to be able to list them all off. You're going to miss some. So the arrangement thing means that all of that work can be done, you know, in the preparation. So that when it comes to service, it's, it's done. It's ready. It's ready to go. I mean, I, I love it, man. And, um, you know, for anyone listening, definitely go check out these bars. Um, when, when's the Shanghai one opening? It's open. There's not been an official launch party, oh, but it opened. I, I think it opened just before uh, New Year's Eve. And by New Year's Eve, I mean uh, Western New Year's Eve, not Chinese. Um, so uh, it's, been, it's been operating for about two months or, or a little under two months at the time of recording. But I don't believe they've done the official launch party yet. Obviously, we're just like refreshing Google Flights every day uh, to see when we can actually get a flight out to um, to Shanghai. And we're looking forward to it because I think I've not been out to Asia for some time. So I think we'll make a couple of weeks of it and um, maybe even get over to Thailand as well because um, it's one of my favorite countries in the world and I've missed it. Yeah, swing by. Yeah, swing by. I'll let, I'll let you know for sure. Good. Well, we've got a few questions left, I reckon. And, um, you know, I think... Uh, we definitely have to talk about um, your role in Diageo Bar Academy mm. and uh, the podcast, which is obviously how um, you know we, we started talking. And and uh, I was you know very happy to come on your show. I think season three to talk about food and drink pairing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, how did that come around, man? I mean, uh, as a fellow podcast host, like um, you know, I think you've pretty much done near about the same amount of episodes as me. Um, how's that been that journey, and how did you get into it? Um, <clears throat> well. You know, I mentioned already that I worked for Diageo um, a few years ago, and that relationship never sort of waned. Even after Tom and I left, we always had a great relationship with them, um, both in terms of um, a little bit of consultancy work on brands here and there, um, but also, and especially in world class, um, both in terms of training, um, but also in the competition itself um, and judging world class. I mean, I've judged dozens of um, national finals all over the place, um, and Tom's done quite a few too. Um, and then I think I've judged five or six of the global finals. So I guess you can say, you know, I've been there's a there's been a long-standing relationship there that um, that's you know been worked really well on both sides. Um, and I also um, was commissioned to create a lot of the original literature and training documents when DBA launched, when Diageo Bar Academy launched about eight or nine years ago. Um, 
and trained a lot of that in as well all over Asia in fact I remember myself and Spike Marchant did a two or three week tour around god must have been a dozen um Asian cities um way back about seven or eight years ago and um trained in all of the local ambassadors on the uh material for for the original sort of DBA courses um and of course DBA has grown a lot since then and um I've written the occasional article for them on the website, um, which, you know, by the way, is, is full of different um, articles written by, you know, a lot of high profile industry figures and, um, and videos and, 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 you know, tutorials and all that sort of stuff. And for some reason, they decided that um, I was an appropriate candidate for hosting this podcast when the sort of bones of it were put together, I guess, about four years ago now. Um, coming up to four years, surely. Um, and I was absolutely flattered. They, they were going to, oh, they asked me, I mean, I'd, I'd been thinking about doing a podcast anyway. I am an avid podcast listener, um, mostly because I run a lot. Um, I do about 10 hours of running a week and pretty much all of that is either audio books or podcast. It's where, where really I consume literature. And, um, so I have my favorite podcasts, um, that aren't, aren't in drinks industry really. Um, and so, you know, it had been a, an idea in my mind that uh, of doing it for, 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 for a year or two before that, but I'd never gotten around to even thinking about it, getting it off the ground. So this was just perfect because, you know, I knew Diageo, I love the brands, uh, I love DBA and, um, it just seemed like the right fit. And, um, I was sort of looking forward to seeing who we could get on with that kind of Diageo backing, be it, you know, high profile people or super interesting people who have good things to say, or um, people from the production side of Diageo, you know, distillers and um, blenders and all that kind of thing. And we have had an incredible mix of people on the podcast. Like it's looking back now, it's it's nuts. Like everything from, um, uh, you know, top bartenders from around the world, literally the top names, um, to um, flavor scientists, um, we recently had a hostage negotiator on, um, sounds weird for a bar industry podcast, but you're really talking about, um, how to, uh, deal with, you know, intense situations, how to get your point across. Um, we've had psychologists on, we've had, um, a bunch of chefs, um, we've had mindfulness practitioners, um, so the podcast really, it's, it's a drinks industry podcast, but it's evolved to become something more than just like day-to-day bar stuff. Um, you know, we've had drinks historians on and, uh, anything that is sort of in any way connected to what we do day-to-day behind the bar, we've tried to bring in experts who have a field that is relevant to that profession and of course the the amazing thing about being a bartender is it really is so broad the job description you know you have to be an excellent communicator you have to understand what people want and how to give it to them you have to you know understand how flavors mix together you need to understand accounting and economics you've got to understand um you know how to prepare and how to execute, um, almost like in a military fashion. You know, some of us as bartenders are amateur historians um, or flavor scientists. Um, you know, there's the there's the sort of presentation side of it, and the fact that you're sort of on a stage, 
and you are delivering a concept and embodying an experience and making uh, you know someone's night so it really pulls in from pretty much every other profession like if you name a profession there's something about it probably that is part of the bartender's remit and so it sort of means that we can bring any guest onto the, the bar chat podcast and they're likely to have something to say that is relevant to what we do behind the bar and that's the joy of it and for me it's it's sort of always been the joy of bartending is is finding ways in which the job infiltrates into what you know air quotes normal society finding the ways in which society has been shaped by cocktails and spirits and, and i mean um you mentioned books earlier i think you know that's that was sort of the impetus for the books that I've written, the Curious Bartender series, you know, it's curiosity around how far this this goes into history and science and culture. And um, it goes a long way, it turns out, you know. Um, the spirits books I've written have really been more an exploration of culture than they are of liquids and how culture has shaped the spirits that we drink, the alcohol we drink, the cocktails we drink, uh, and so on. So... Um, I almost feel like the, D, the, D, the Bar Chat podcast is to some extent an extension of the Curious Bartender books. Um, you know, there are, of course, a lot of stakeholders involved, but for the most part, we, you know, we really see eye to eye, myself and Diageo and the agency that organized the podcast around what it is we think bartenders, what's going to be useful for them to consume. And, you know, the podcast is a different kind of format to the rest of DBA. Um, you know, whereas the Diageo Bar Academy website is very instructional. I mean, and there are sort of editorial pieces on there about trends and that sort of thing. I feel like the podcast, the way in which people consume podcasts is they're looking for something more conversational. Um, and, you know, the learnings that you take from a podcast may not be so directly obvious. It might not be a bullet point of take home um, items of information, but in a way by listening to a conversation, um, it can be even more enriching because it allows you to establish conclusions more organically within yourself rather than being told this is how you should behave and what you should do. So um, it's, a, it's a total privilege to do it and I really hope it will continue. I hope this, that we're, we're in the midst of a massive trend for podcasts. It seems like everyone's got one now. Um, in fact, I've got two. I do a podcast on running as well, believe it or not. Um, and ultra marathons, yeah. Um, which is about 30 episodes deep as well. Um, totally different thing, but um, I interview sort of doctors and sports scientists and, uh, and elite athletes on that one. Um, but yeah, it seems like everyone's got a podcast at the moment. And um, I, I hope that, um, you know, we're not sort of heading towards a sort of burst bubble situation. Um, but it just, for me, it just seems like such an incredible way to, to um, consume media and especially these sort of longer form conversations that go on for more than half an hour, let's say, um, where you get a sort of deeper insight into what, um, what someone thinks and what they feel. And I think they're a great antidote to the sort of clickbait media that we're sort of subjected to through social media on a daily basis, where it's these tiny nuggets of sensationalist stuff and you never really get to the bottom of what makes someone tick or who they actually are. I think that's a perfect way to sum up what podcasts are these days and it's definitely the way I, I fell into a love of it and, and, and do it, you know, my show and it is a great way to consume information and, and long form content as well, it's, 
Yeah, it's great, man. Um, I'm so glad that you've got your podcast going, Bar Chat. I've listened to quite a few episodes now, and like you said, it's a broad range of people. And, uh, you know, like some people you just wouldn't expect to come on a show about, about alcohol, but yeah. there's always something to learn. And um, for anyone listening, um, obviously all these links to Bar Chat, Tristan's podcast will be in the show notes. Also, to get your Bar Academy, we have to mention that it's such a great resource. There are so many uh, levels of learning on there, including masterclass webinars uh, about bar management, uh, even spirits and drink category knowledge. Um, but the Bar Chat's great. And um, I, yeah, I think as you, Kristen, you do running quite often, and um, that's a great sort of time to listen to podcasts, and even with people's commute as well. Mm. You're driving in a car or on a train. Um, it's just great to be able to plug in and, ju- and just sort of listen. Um, so yeah, keep doing what you're doing because I think the show is epic. I am going to listen to your running podcast if you can send me that. Uh, well, we'll <laughs> that link later as well. You're going to put it in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> sure, man. Why not? I'll help. I'll help. Let it grow. It's cool. I'm sure t- there's a lot of it, runners it, listening though. That's the thing. Yeah, there probably is. Well, you, you're welcome to edit this out, but it's called the Trail and Error Podcast. Um, Trial and error. That's a great name. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, cool. No, don't worry. Let's go into the show now, man. Um, look, we're going to wrap up very soon. Uh, once again, thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, you know sharing about you and your history and and what you're doing now. Um, just to wrap up, what's new? What's next for you? I mean, obviously you're super busy with so much stuff going on, but um, maybe more to focus on the podcast. Like, what have you got planned for that? And um, yeah, any sort of ideas for travel? now things are starting to open up again i know you mentioned shanghai and and maybe thailand but anything else in the works Mm. um well next for me is um i've just finished another book which i can't talk too much about it actually unfortunately um but suffice to say it's it's all about the martini um and it will be out at some point this year i hope hope definitely in time for christmas or i'm hoping um so keep an eye out for that one um Besides that, there's, I think I might have mentioned at the start of the recording, I've, I've got this whiskey subscription business um, that um, I also do with my business partner, Tom. And this was an extension of Black Rock, really. We were sort of looking at ways to break down another barrier of entry into whiskey, that being that you have to get up off your sofa and go out the door and go to a whiskey bar. Um, and so we started a, a whiskey subscription company, which we send out 60 mil pouches of whiskey um to all of our members and yeah we got the we we managed to get this funding from dragon's den and it's really blown up and um it's uh it's a lot of fun and we're now up to eleven thousand members here in the uk who all get a pouch of whiskey every single month and um we're looking to expand that we're looking at international options to to take that um overseas um brexit has kind of been a bit of a thorn in our side in that respect if that hadn't happened it would have been a lot easier um but a lot of my time is being dedicated to to growing that now because it's it's become such a big thing um travel wise i am hopefully going to be at tales of the cocktail this year in new orleans um so i'm looking forward to that because i i missed it well it didn't happen last year or the year before i think right let me get this right did they cancel two years or i don't know um i think it was one yeah i, just I might want... see you there though yeah i'm gonna be there cool um so that I'm looking forward to. And then I've had a couple of invitations out to various European um, markets to do what some world-class stuff, um, which are all TBC, but I'm hoping to be getting on a plane um, shortly after Easter. And then, yeah, China, hopefully, um, once, the, uh, once they unlock the borders. 
um, which is, is really exciting. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, do you know what? I'm pretty reactive with these kind of things. Um, I'm lucky in that I do get contacted for stuff and um, I, uh, you know, it, and, and <laughs> luckily the work in that respect hasn't dried up yet. Um, but, uh, and then there's world class, of course, which I'm not sure what's happening with that this year, but, um, um, I'm looking forward to seeing the sort of global finals of that too. So lots of stuff to look forward to this year as the world sort of reopens and, um, we can kind of re-engage with one another, um, and not have to talk over zoom all the time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, Tristan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, and actually thank you for everything you've done for our community because, uh, Oh, thank you for saying that. I guess that. you heard from the show, like, no, it's true, man. You really have sort of driven uh, our industry forward a lot in many different ways and aspects. And obviously, are, you know, uh, you've affected um, and probably inspired many bartenders in their career just through um, what you do, through your books, through for everything. So, yeah, big thanks from me and I'm sure from all the listeners as well for, for your role and what you do in the industry. And, um, you know, for the listeners, if you want to find out more about Tristan, Please go listen to the podcast, both of them. And, <laughs> uh, show notes will be there. Go check out all the books. I'll put the links in the books too. Those, they, you know, those books inspired me in the career. Um, and yeah, really, uh, thanks so much for coming on the show once again. Oh, absolute pleasure. Thank you. It's, uh, I keep up the good work with the podcast because um, I've enjoyed listening to some of your episodes as well. And um, yeah, I uh, yeah hope hope you uh, continue doing it for for some time. And. Um, yeah thanks a lot and thanks for coming on bar chat as well it was a good conversation so everyone listening to this should certainly you obviously like the sound of christopher's voice i don't know whether you like the sound of mine but if you like the sound of his then you should check out our episode together yeah it was a good one tristan all the best for the future thank you very much man thanks thank you so much for listening to the show guys uh, we are available on spotify itunes and all other major podcast providers your support helps my show grow and I love you for listening. So thank you so much. If you want to be a part of it even more, please look at the show notes. You can find links to our Facebook group, The Beverage Network. You can also find links to my Patreon page where you can help the show grow even further with small donations. And you can also find my email where you can reach me anytime with any questions. You guys are amazing. I love this industry. Let's keep it growing. Thank you for listening to On The Bat Bar. <laughs>